Well, good morning and glad to be up here. I've seen most of you. I've been back from sabbatical for about five weeks. I've been here in worship doing prayer or announcements or I've seen you around the building, but it's my first chance to preach. You know, Jerry doesn't like to give this spot up very often, so, right? So, no, but he's going to be here at 1030, so I'll tell him that then. But a couple of quick things before we begin. You were here early. Uh, You heard Betsy say that on October 30th, next Sunday, we're only having one service, 10 a.m., Uh, And that's so we can have one congregational meeting at 11 a.m. to move Jerry from designated pastor to permanent pastor. So we're doing that. It's a brunch Sunday. It's the fifth Sunday of the month. So we're having brunch at 9 a.m. and then at 11.30. And at 11.30 also a fall celebration with lots of games and things. We're praying for good weather. Most of it could be moved inside if we need it, but we'd love to be outside on a day like today. So that's next Sunday. And then I want to invite you. I am going to talk a little bit about this morning just a little bit about uh, my sabbatical time and a trip to Israel that my family and I took in June. But I'd love to tell you more about that. Many of you who care, you know, you've come up to ask me, say, how was your trips? How was your time away? Because I was gone for four months. So two weeks from today on November 6th at 1145, it would be after the second service, we're going to host a free lunch uh, in the chapel and uh, you're invited to come. We'd love for you to come. It says on the back of the bulletin, you can RSVP to the church office. I'm going to share lots and lots of stories of things I learned. I read a lot of books while I was gone, plus an amazing trip to Israel. So I'm going to tell you about that on November 6th. Again, that's two weeks from today at 1145. All right. Well, today we're continuing our trek on finding our true north, what we believe as Christians. And as uh, we heard earlier today, We look at the Bible. So since we are, we're reading from the Bible, from Deuteronomy 6 and Mark 12. Let's read first from Deuteronomy 6 in the Old Testament. These are the commands, decrees, and laws your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So that is from uh, Moses' word in Deuteronomy. And now we're going to look to uh, the Gospel of Mark, a conversation that Jesus had. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. 
You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh Lord, today we give you thanks for your word, especially as we study it today. And so, God, may the words of my mouth, may the words that we read, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we say on Sundays, and uh, Jerry brought this to us, I think it's great, we say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. But I hope you notice we don't say, this might be the word of the Lord. We're going to check it out. You know, some of these words are God's words. We're going to parse that. Or these are suggestions that God made for us. We don't say any of those things. We say, this is the word of the Lord. And I'm here to say, yes, we can believe that today. And I want to encourage you that the Bible is something worth studying, that we can believe in, that we can trust, that we can base our actions on. I was reading this week uh, a book on, called Believe by Randy Frazee, and he used this definition of the Bible. He says, the Bible is the inspired word of God that guides my, act- my beliefs and actions. I think that's a great uh, quote there, definition. The Bible is the inspired word of God that guides my beliefs and actions. So we believe that God reveals himself. He lets himself be known through the word of God written down in the Bible. Now, when we say written down, it doesn't mean that God took Moses' hand or Luke's hand or Paul's hand and he forced them to write uh, what he told them specifically to write. It means that he inspired through the Holy Spirit uh, them to write down things that he had either told them or things that they had seen. When my family and I, when we were in Israel this summer in June, one thing that we were reminded of by uh, Jeff Carroll, who is our, our teacher and our guide there, is that the New Testament is closely, very closely connected to the Old Testament. And Jesus shows, that, shows us that today uh, in the Scripture, in Mark 12, where he, he quotes very directly from Deuteronomy 6. And what he's quoting is the Shema. The Shema, is the, it's the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, from the books of Moses, And as he said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I want to look at the Shema just for a little bit. When we were in Israel, we said the Shema every morning together out loud. And it kind of got with us. It stuck with us. It It was very cool. The word Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. And so that's how they remember that. It's called the Shema Israel. And this is the most well-known scripture to Jews back then and even today. Even today... It is the most important part of their morning and their evening prayers. And even back then, in Jesus' time, we believe that Jesus, as a Jewish man, as an observant Jewish young man, would say the Shema every morning and every night as part of his prayers. Now, what happens right before that? Because it's really important, that commandment. What happens right before that? Well, if you look back in Deuteronomy 5, we're not going to take time to look at all that. But Moses teaches again the Ten Commandments. So it's in Exodus 20, and then it's again in Deuteronomy 5. So he teaches the Ten Commandments, and then he talks about what we are to do with those commandments. Why should we follow 
God's commands. Why should we love God with all that we are? And he says these things in Deuteronomy 6. We should follow God's commands so that you and your children may fear God. This means to respect and revere God. He goes on to say that if the people follow God's commands, they can enjoy long life. We read that. It may go well with you that your families would increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey. Does that mean for them and for us that everything would go right? Of course not. You know, we can read in the prophets later that the Jewish people made lots of mistakes. They strayed from God in many ways, just as we do today. And so they didn't have everything great all the time. But it says, if we try to stay in the commands, if we try to stay in the boundaries of the commands, we're better off than if we do not. That these are God's best. It's God's best design for our way to live. And if we for choosing well, we'll choose to stay within God's commands. Deuteronomy goes on to say this, and this is an important part too for us, I think, as a church. He says, impress them, these commands, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. So how do we pass these truths down, especially to younger, those younger than us, to our covenant children or for your children or grandchildren, we talk with them about it. It says we impress those things upon them. Um, We help them to study it, to know it, to understand it. Now, this was written about 3,000 years ago, but I think certainly it applies to us today. What if today we still talk about God's desires with our young people, you know, as we walk, as we drive in our cars, maybe as we watch a, a movie on Netflix or we We talk about what's going on in the news. What if we talk about um, with our families and with our children what those things mean? We try at the Shelton House um, to do some of this, and certainly we're not perfect at it, but a couple of things we try to do is we try to talk in relationship to what's going on in our culture with our kids, what's going on at school, what's happening with their friends at school. Because I have four teenagers right now, one in college, three, uh, three younger teenagers, What's happening with their friends? We've even talked about in the last couple of weeks what's going on with the national elections and local elections. How does God play a part in that? We try to do some little things. We pray at meals when we all sit down together. It's not every night, but a lot of nights. We pray in restaurants because we want to feel that we're okay with our faith in public. And we try with our kids. We, a lot of days we drive our kids to school, so we try to pray a blessing before them on the way to school. You know, that's just a few seconds, but it's a blessing for their day. These are some of the ways that the Shelton family were trying to impress upon our kids um, what our faith means. Do we do it every day? Do we cover everything? No. But are we trying? We're trying. We're trying to impress on our kids what it means to have faith. So for to know these commands and pass it down to others as Christians, um, how do we know the Bible? How can we study it. What can we do with the Bible? And I've tried lots of different practices over the years. I've looked at lots of different things, but here's three things that I think you can do, three things that I do that I think are pretty standard practices that can help us uh, know the Bible and apply it to our lives. First, to read the Bible devotionally. Read the Bible devotionally. And for that, some people use the Proverbs um, to talk about how you live each day. I like to use the Psalms I don't use the Psalms every day, but I use the Psalms maybe three or four times a week, probably more than I don't. And what I do with that is I take Psalms and I pray through them. And here's a few of them 
that um, I, I thought about, and as I, I talked to someone in the office this week, you know, what, what are some examples of how we pray through the Psalms? You can use any of the Psalms as your prayers and just take the words of the Psalms and apply it to your own life as you read them or in, in, and even read them out loud. So if I need to confess, if I need to think about something I've done wrong, which is pretty much every day, if I need to confess, I, I might use Psalm 51. It's David's confession about his time uh, with Bathsheba. If I need comfort for something, if someone is sick or ill, or if I'm not feeling well, if things aren't going right, I might use the famous 23rd Psalm. If I want to praise God, and this is a good way to start your prayers, I will use Psalm 100. It's a short little psalm. I really like Psalm, the, the 111th Psalm. All the psalms through the 90s and the early 100s, a lot of those are real praise psalms that get you in the attitude of praise. Sometimes I'll pray uh, Psalm 111 as a praise psalm, And then I'll read right after that Psalm 112, which talks about living a generous life. How is we are Christians supposed to live a generous life? So I like the 112th Psalm for that. I think it's good that we seek God and that we cry out to God. You know, times are tough. Um, Circumstances are difficult for all of us at different phases in our life. And so oftentimes when I'm going through something that might be difficult, I'll read Psalm 61, 62, and 63. Maybe one of those or maybe all three. They're short. And they help me to kind of pray, to kind of cry out what I'm thinking or feeling to God. So there's just some examples of how you might use the Bible devotionally in your life. I often try to read a chapter a day, whether I do the Psalms or not. Sometimes I'll use that as my chapter. Sometimes another chapter from the Old Testament or New Testament. Do I remember everything I read? No. Sometimes by late in the morning, I've already forgot what I read that day. I probably like you. I'm not so sure if that's how you are, but I know I'm like that. Some days, though, I'll read it, and I'll feel that God really spoke to me through that, and it's very meaningful for me. So I think a chapter is plenty long enough to get a feel for what God is saying to you. Second, so you can can use the Bible devotionally. Second, you can memorize the Scriptures. You can memorize the Scriptures. I have a friend who's memorized the entire book of Romans, and he kind of intimidates me because I could never do that. I could never memorize the entire book of Romans, okay? But I do memorize some verses, and I, and I usually prefer short verses. I'm just going to say that, all right? So I might say this, and I will say this sometimes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's just a reminder for me that this day belongs to God, and I'm going to try to do my best to give it to him. That's an easy one. We've said this with our kids. You could say it with your kids or grandkids. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that's an easy one to think about. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to follow God and not go against what God has for me, instead to go for God. Probably the passage that I've memorized and, and thought about the most uh, over many years, a lot of my adult life, is, is not one that's one of the most famous ones, but Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I tend to be a person that can worry about things. And, uh, most recently, as I said, having four teenagers, what's going on in their lives, as they begin more in control and I become less in control, which I don't like, Uh, thinking about how are we going to pay for college for everybody, I start to get anxious and worried about that. And when I do, I can look back to Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And I will tell you, at times I have this perfectly memorized, at other times I have to look at it again to remind myself of what it says. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we're to pray. We're to give up our worries, our anxiety to God. And when we do, God says, 
he will give us peace. When we, when we unburden ourselves to him, that he will give us peace, a peace that passes understanding. And I keep going back to that. It's not just for one time. I keep going back to that again and again in my life. So with the Bible, we can read it devotionally. We can memorize Scripture. And third, we can study it. We can study the Bible. And I want to talk briefly about that. This is one of the main reasons why in our church and in more Reformed churches that are Presbyterian churches, we hold a high value of Scripture, and we spend time reading it and studying, studying it every Sunday in worship. It's a reason why we have Sunday school classes for all ages, not only for adults, but especially for our kids and our youth, that we have youth groups. It's one of the reasons we have a great banquet and awakening. It's one of the main reasons, not the only reason, that we have home groups because we study the Scripture in those home groups that we've talked about on Sunday. And so we study it together, and this is the other part, I think, It's hard sometimes in a large crowd like this, you can't have a lot of interaction. But when you're in a smaller classroom setting, uh, when you're in a small group, a home group, when you're in a youth group or a Sunday school class, you'll have time to talk about it. What did that passage mean? And then what did it mean for me? What did that passage mean? What did it mean when Jesus said that, you know, when Moses wrote that down? And then what does that mean for me? We can do that together. We can study the Bible together. So for studying the Bible, is it something, again, we can trust? Can we trust what we have? And I think especially, can we trust what we have today? Is it the same thing that was passed down originally, maybe 3,000 years ago for the Old Testament, up to 2,000 years ago for the New Testament? And I want to tell you, I believe wholeheartedly that the Bible is trustworthy. Now, we don't have original copies of the 66 books of the Bible, but we have very, very old copies. And we know from uh, what has been passed down to us in tradition, Jewish scribes and then early Christian writers, the scribes would copy down the books of the Bible, and they were incredibly careful. And if they, used, uh, if they copied down a single pa- a page, a whole page of notes of, of the Bible by hand, if they had one word that was a mistake— they would take the page and burn it and begin again. And so I'm sure that happened often when they would do that. And, and it seems like a waste of time, but they would burn the page so that they could copy again to get it exactly what it said in the, in the previous copy. While we were in Jerusalem in June, we went to the Israel Museum, which was an amazing place. It's where they housed part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they had on display that day, which they don't every day, uh, the entire a scroll, which is the entire book of Isaiah, and it was huge. This is a scroll that was found at the Dead Sea Scrolls. We went to Qumran, where they found those scrolls, and the scroll is 2,000 years old. It's probably those in the other Dead Sea Scrolls, probably the oldest um, extensive copies of the Old Testament. When they compare those to what we have in the Old Testament today, it's incredibly accurate. When we look at the New Testament, we have the oldest copy of the New Testament is less than 100 years removed from when the writings were originally done in the first century. So it's less than 100 years old. And when compared, uh, when compared to first copies of the Bible, today's Bibles, the Bibles we have today, are found to be 99.9% accurate to the ancient text. It's amazing. So we find that there's incredible accuracy in the Bible we have today to the oldest copies that we have. So we might ask, can we believe what it says in the Bible? Can we believe those things actually happen. There's a lot of miracles. Do we believe in a God who can do miracles? Can we believe in the stories of the Bible? 
And I think one of the things that I had the privilege to do when we went to Israel was to go to a lot of the locations, the places where actual uh, Bible stories happened. Uh, we went to these in, incredible places. We went to uh, the Valley of Elah, where the uh, Battle of David and Goliath took place. It was amazing to walk there. That was very cool. We went to Jerusalem, all over Jerusalem, and Bethlehem, and Capernaum, where the ruins are uh, kept very carefully there in Capernaum. Uh, that was pretty much, it was Peter's hometown and a lot of where Jesus based his ministry out of near the Sea of Galilee. But possibly our favorite spot, and the one I want to tell you about today, was not maybe the, the most famous spot that a lot of tour groups would go. And in fact, not many tour groups go there at all, but it was very, very special to us. I want to take a few minutes to tell you about it, and it'll take me a minute to kind of explain why it's special, but it's also that it connects uh, the Old Testament to the New. It connects God's Word from the beginning um, up until the time of Jesus, and then it connects to us today how we apply the Bible to our lives. So in Joshua 8, so if we think back, so the Israelites were in Egypt. They were enslaved. They left Egypt under Moses' guidance. They crossed the Red Sea. They wander for 40 years. Moses dies. They go into the Holy Land, the Promised Land, with Joshua. And when they went there, they went to a valley. Uh, pretty soon after they got in, they went to a valley between two small mountains called Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And it says there in Joshua 8 that half the people stood in front of Mount Ebal and half the people stood down in front of Mount Gerizim, probably near the bottom of the mountains. And where, when they did... Joshua read, it says, Joshua read from the book of the law, which is the book of Moses, which we read out of now, the first five books of the Bible. And there, the Israelites renewed their promises to follow God. So we got to drive right up into this valley between Mount Ebal and Gerizim. Betsy, do we have that? Yeah. So you can see some of the glare of the window of our van right there in the middle. But that's Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim as we drove into there. It was an incredible place. Now, that was cool, but that's not why we went there. We went there to go to Nablus, which is a Palestinian city of over 100,000 people. It's in the West Bank. And to get to the West Bank, to get out of the part of Israel into the West Bank, you have to go through a checkpoint where they, they have men with machine guns, and they can check your passport to make sure that, that you are who say you are. You go through a checkpoint. We drove into Nablus. There was a second checkpoint. There was nobody manning the second checkpoint because tensions are not high. But sometimes the tensions are high in Nablus between Palestinians and Jews. And sometimes there are protests there. And so some groups try to go there and can't even get in. So we went to Nablus, and we went there to go to Jacob's Well. Now, Jacob's Well was at a place called Shechem in the Old Testament where Jacob gave land to his son Joseph. So if you think all the way back to Genesis, near the end of the book of Genesis, where Jacob gave land to his son Joseph. And didn't you guys study Joseph, I think, when I was on sabbatical, right? Seeing some heads nodding back during the summer. This is land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph near the town of Shechem, which is right down between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And today, there's a Palestinian town there in the West Bank. We traveled to the St. Fotini Church and Convent, a Greek Orthodox church. And we weren't sure that we could get in there because our guy, Jeff, had been calling and no one had been answering. And so we weren't sure even if the, uh, the church and the convent were open. But we drove up. Jeff went and knocked on the door. It's kind of a walled compound. And they answered and they said we could come in. So we were so glad because we hadn't spent time uh, driving there. So we went into this beautiful Greek Orthodox church. And here's a picture of it. 
might be a little dark, but you can see it's a beautiful church, and there were lots of candles and, and lights and um, icons and, and uh, uh, icons of Jesus and, and different things. It was an amazing place. Now, if we went, up to the, we went up to the front of the church after we were inside for a bit, and there were stairs on either side of the church going down. They might be able to see those a little bit there, but not really. It's hard to see. And there, when we went down below ground, below ground level, it's what we wanted to see. We wanted to see Jacob's well, and here's what it looks like. So this is underground in this church in Nablus in the West Bank. Now, the well itself, it's a deep well hewn out of solid rock. It's 135 feet deep, and it still draws fresh water today. And so it's, it's a famous well. So I'm, I'm asking Jeff, and I did this a couple of times. I said, Jeff, I'm a little skeptical. You know, is this, is this the same well? Maybe it's like the same water source. Is it close to the well was? He's like, you know, there are some places we can't verify. There's actually a lot of places that scholars can't verify. This is one they can. This is the same well. It might not look exactly the same on the top. We believe this is the same well that Jesus was at, and uh, we believe it's even at the same height or the same level where the wellhead was because we had to go down underground to get there and see it. So we talked a little bit about the well, and then Jeff says this. He said, let's read together from John 4. This is from John 4. He said, now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. And he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. And then Jeff stopped, and he said rather dramatically, so Jesus sat right there. And we were there sitting next, or standing next to Jacob's well. And we got to go over to the well, and here's couple of my kids, they were, there's an old pulley system. It looks old. Um, you, can, you can put the bucket in and, and lower the bucket. You can hear it go all the way to the bottom, hit the, hit the water, and then, and then draw back up. We drew water from that well, and we touched the well. But that's not the end of the story. The story of Jacob's well goes on in John 4 because Jesus sends his disciples. So Jesus sat down by this well in Sychar, this Samaritan town, And he sends his disciples into the town to buy food. And then he interacts with a Samaritan woman. It says it was about noon. The woman is coming to the well to get water in the middle of the day. Now, most women would come to get water at the start of the day. She was not. She did not because she was somewhat of an outcast. And Jesus tells her why. Uh, Because he's God, he says, you have had five husbands, and the man that you now live with is not your husband. So she realizes He's someone special. She calls him a prophet. Now, he doesn't condemn this Samaritan woman, as he doesn't condemn us either, but he shares with her about uh, many things, and he tells her if she drinks the water he has, she will never be thirsty because he has living water. And then she replies this. She says, she knows the Messiah is coming, and Jesus says in response, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So at this location in John 4, and we were sitting there reading this story, this is a place, one of the places, where Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah. And that's not the end of the story either. Because if we have a revelation from God, if we read God's word and we see that it's true and it should have meaning for our lives, then we need to act on it, right? So the woman at the well, she acted on it. So she didn't sit there and, and, and talk with Jesus right then. She gets up, she goes back into town, and she starts telling everyone about this man that she's met, that he's the prophet, and he may be the Messiah. And a lot of the townspeople come 
to meet him. And I don't know how long they were together, but they were together long enough that later the townspeople say, after they've met Jesus, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So they know for themselves because this woman went and told them about it, and then they came to meet Jesus as well. That's not the end of the story. So the well sits in, in Nablus, a Palestinian city. So 98, 99% of the people that live there are Palestinian and they're Muslims. And some of the Muslims in town don't really like a Christian church, a Greek Orthodox church being in town. But there are zealous Jews who really don't like that the church is there and it's a Christian church. They believe that this site is a Jewish site as it was uh, uh, Jacob's Well before it was a Christian holy site. So in 1979, if you go back almost four years, 40 years, excuse me, zealous Jews killed the priest because they wanted to have the well and not the Christians. But the Christians were able to maintain the well, and soon after, a respected priest who lived nearby, Father Justinios, took over the well, and he has been there ever since. Now, he too has been attacked by zealous Jews But think about it. Not only does he provide spiritual guidance for this small Christian community, this small church, he faces persecution for what he believes. In a sense, he's the keeper of the well, and he allows pilgrims like us to come there to see it so that our faith can be strengthened. And by doing that, he is helping to impress upon children, my children, because we got to take them there, that their faith is real and that we can believe it and that we can live it. So he's living his faith as well. Now, 20 years ago, Claire and I got to go to, to Israel, and we got to go to Jacob's well. And when we were there, we met Father Justinios then too. He was there 20 years ago. He's been there for a long time. And so Claire tells him when we were, we were there, he says, well, this is our son Jacob. We were here 20 years ago, and this is our son Jacob, who's now 18. And there he is. He's standing outside. This is right outside the wall. And it says Jacob's well there in a couple of different languages. And so our son Jacob, we named him Jacob partly because of Jacob's well. So Father Justinius, who I don't think speaks a lot of English, but he understood, he, asked Jacob, he, he calls Jacob over by waving his hand, and he gives Jacob and all our kids a, a little bracelet that they could help uh, remember being at Jacob's well on that um, day. So here's all of our kids with Father Justinius. If you can't tell, Father Justinius is the short one with the beard. <laughs> the Sheltons are tall. Father Justinius is not tall, but he is a godly man. And so it was an incredible day, um, worth our day so much to go through that. So Father Justinius believes God's word. He knows it is the word of the Lord. He lives it, and he's passing down his faith to children like my children. And we were blessed to share our faith, Claire and I, with our kids on this trip. God has revealed himself to us. I can say I believe this story's of the Bibles to be true because I saw many of the places like this, many, many more firsthand and and saw those places and believe the Bible to be true, that we can trust it. But you don't have to go to Israel to trust the Bible. You can read it together. You can study it. You can read it devotionally. You can pray it. You can memorize scripture and then apply it to your life. And we today can say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if we do that, We are following God's uh, commands and living what he teaches us to do. Let's pray. 
Most loving God, we do pray as Jesus prayed, as Jews prayed, um, Lord, this Shema, that we are to love uh, the Lord, that we are to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. God, help us to believe in the Bible as we study it, as we read it, as we memorize verses from it. God, that it is true and that we can trust it. So, Lord, help us to do that even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.